The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. This song and uh, its words, I think, prepare our hearts well to hear from 1 Samuel tonight. We are continuing in a, a series that Dr. York began last week in the book of 1 Samuel. And as I was thinking about this uh, I, tonight, I realized I had thought about saying something about how 1 Samuel is one of my favorite Old Testament books. And then I realized that in the last seven years, this would probably be at least the fourth Old Testament book I said was one of my favorites. And so if we keep this up, I'll have all of them uh, hit as one of my favorites. So rather than say that, I should probably just say, I'm really eager to look at God's word together in the coming weeks and, and, and really learn together about the character of God that comes from watching him at work in the book of, of 1 Samuel. Last week, uh, Dr. York began us with chapter 1, uh, and we saw God's goodness poured out to Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, as he answered her prayer by giving her a son, Samuel. And Hannah responded to this gift with this outpouring of thanks and gratitude. Uh, Dr. York really, I think, did a great job of highlighting how Hannah's sacrifice uh, was a a large, a significant sacrifice uh, that she offered. But of course, she went beyond just offering the bowl and, and flour and wine and other things. She offered Samuel himself, uh, giving her son back to the Lord in thanks for what uh, he offered. But tonight, um, last week, if we saw Hannah's response in action, tonight we get her prayer as we begin to get to reflect on God's goodness uh, to Hannah. And this is found at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 11. And so if you'd follow with me as we read 1 Samuel chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life, but he brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in the darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. 
The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, how we thank you for your grace to us, your favor to us in speaking and preserving your words to us in Scripture. And we pray, and we pray this with confidence, knowing you've promised to do it, but we pray that you would work through your word in our hearts to encourage us in Christ and bring us to Christ tonight. We thank you that we pray this, standing on your promises. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we start to think about this um, prayer of Hannah's tonight. I wonder if maybe you would start just by thinking for a minute about someone you know who is constantly giving to other people, constantly sacrificing themselves, constantly pouring themselves out in generosity to others. And if you have a specific person in mind or you, you get that person in mind, you start to get a picture of what that person is like. I knew a family growing up. They were probably one of the most well-to-do uh, families in our circle. But the thing that constantly drew our attention to them was that they were repeatedly generous, constantly giving to and blessing people around them. They volunteered frequently, but it wasn't just their volunteer work. It was how they treated the people they knew. They were known on more than one occasion uh, to sell one of their good cars to a family who had need and to sell it for one dollar as a blessing uh, to that family. And these are just uh, examples of the things they they do. And as they served and gave generously, if you know a family like this and, and you hear something that they do that is particularly generous, it's not really surprising. You, you tend to respond, that is so generous, but that's just like them. I don't know if you've ever said something like that, but I, I feel like my family would often say that about this family. Well, that was amazing, but, but that's just like them. That was just another example of their character on display. And we might say, well, now, if, if it had been, you know, uh, Joe down the street, now that would have been surprising, but not this family. That fits with their character. Well, when we read Hannah's prayer here in 1 Samuel 2, this is something of what Hannah is saying in response to what God has done for her. And I think if we could summarize the main point of her prayer, the main point would be this. God has blessed me with a son. But that's not surprising because that's the kind of thing God does. God has blessed me by answering my prayer, by raising me out of grief with blessing. But, but that's exactly the kind of thing that the God of Israel does. That's the main point Hannah's making. And then she is going to look again and say, not only does God act like that, but I know he's going to act like that again to save his people in the future. And what I want to do is walk through this prayer, and I just want us to see three things. I want to see Hannah's response to God's goodness and giving her the boy Samuel. Then I want to see Hannah's declaration of God's character. And then I want to see Hannah's hope in God's coming king. So let's look through the passage and see these three things. We'll start, um, look at verses 1 and 2, and we'll see Hannah's personal response 
to God's goodness. The thing I think that immediately stands out about verses 1 and 2 is how often the first person pronoun is used. My, I, my, my. Hannah's reflecting on the specific thing that God did for her in answering her prayer and giving her this baby, uh, Samuel. And she talks about her whole being and its response to the Lord's goodness. She starts the first phrase, my heart exalts in the Lord. And the heart here refers to Hannah's inner being, her, her inner response, her thoughts, her desires. The heart in uh, Hebrew language doesn't refer to emotions, maybe in the way that we would think of heart, uh, but more your inner thoughts, your inner desires, your inner response to what the Lord has done. Maybe you know what it's like when you hear good news that answers long anxieties. Uh, In my context, I think of maybe a a student uh, who has studied for maybe a significant exam. Maybe they've studied for six months for something like the bar exam. Maybe you study for even longer than that or something major. And they've, they've thought about it, worried about it for a long time. And then they hear the good news that they've passed. And they don't just say, great. Your whole being sort of rejoices. You know, it, it impacts how you respond in body and soul and thought and, and, and emotion. And, and that, that whole inner response uh, gets at what Hannah is saying here, when her heart exalts in the Lord. And I think it's important to note that Hannah doesn't just say her heart exalts, as in, I'm really happy. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. It's not just the boy that God has given her that has made her happy. It's the fact that the Lord has answered her prayer, that the Lord has entered his, her life and shown his care for her by answering her prayer. Her whole inner being exalts because the Lord has answered her prayer. Then she says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. Now, this one may be a little bit harder to uh, visualize. Uh, what, what exactly is her horn? Not many people we know uh, exhibit horns. Uh, but the, the metaphor is commonly used in poetry. It's all throughout the Psalms. The horn was typically the source of strength uh, for, for an, an animal. And, and so David often uses this in the Psalter, my horn, uh, my strength, if you will. Uh, the horn was often used to symbolize a person's strength or courage. And I think here we, we want to hear, you know how discouragement or disappointment sap our strength? You know how it is when we're maybe have gone through a long difficulty and it's, it's discouraging us, it has us down, and, and we just don't have the energy, the motivation, the drive, it, it weakens us. But then, of course, when the opposite happens, when we receive good news, when things lift us up and encourage us, we're remotivated, we're re-energized, and even our, even our physical sense of strength is impacted by our encouragement or discouragement. And here Hannah is saying, when I received this good news, this encouraging answer to prayer that showed the Lord's involvement and care for my life, my strength returned, my whole strength exalts in the Lord for what he has done. I... Uh, had a scene, a particular movie scene in mind as I think of a horn exalting in this good news. And some of you, uh, I know Dr. Light just used the Lord of the Rings as an analogy two weeks ago, I think, but I was thinking of an, uh, a scene in the Lord of the Rings movie where the troops of Rohan, one of the, the armies, have fought in darkness all night against overwhelming odds. There are few of them left 
and they're preparing in the morning for one last desperate attack. But as dawn breaks, 3,000 of their scattered troops suddenly appear over the hillside and attack their enemies in the rear. And the sudden sight of 3,000 renewed troops attacking their enemies in the year so fills these troops, these discouraged troops with hope, that they go out with renewed energy to the attack. They're no longer just sort of in discouraged desperation, but now they're motivated and energized by hope that's come, and it physically impacts them. That's what I think we hear Hannah saying. Her heart, her inner being exalts, her strength exalts in the Lord and what he has done. Well, then the third phrase, my mouth. We go from heart and the inner response to strength, the physical response, to my mouth derides my enemies and rejoices in God's salvation. Her voice, Hannah's voice, cannot help but break forth in praise when she sees what God has done for her. Now, I think we have to pause here a little bit because it might seem a little bit odd. We might expect my mouth praises the Lord. I don't think we were expecting my mouth derides my enemies. Now, that seems like a surprising phrase there. Uh, What exactly does this mean? Well, I think um, we need to remember what a significant part of Hannah's grief was in chapter 1. In chapter 1, not only was Hannah childless, that was a significant grief, but we read in verse 6 that Penina, her rival, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. And so part of, part of what uh, was uh, the grief for Hannah was that her rival, Penina, was using her barrenness to deride her. And it's not just saying, ha ha, you have no children. But this would get at Hannah's prayer to the Lord. The Lord is not answering your prayer. You have prayed for a child and the Lord doesn't care. He doesn't hear. This is part of what's happening, the context for for Hannah. And so when, when God answers that prayer, Hannah now is able to exalt and rejoice and praise the Lord in a way that contradicts those rival, that rival taunt. And I think it's really helpful here. Uh, one of the commentators brought out that the word for deride, sometimes that word can be sort of a vengeful, a vengeful or, or spiteful uh, taunt, but often it doesn't. Often it just means, I now have something to say about the Lord that contradicts what the Lord's enemies kept saying. You know, when, when someone is taunting you about something and you have no answer, what do you say? But now the Lord has given her an answer. And it's not so much that she's taunting Penina, but now if you t- try to tell me, Penina, that the Lord doesn't hear my prayers, not true. The Lord has answered me and I can praise him for his answered prayer in a very specific and tangible way that contradicts the taunts that you were giving me. And so here's Hannah. Her heart exalts, her strength exalts, her mouth exalts and rejoices because of God's prayer. Now, I, uh, I wonder, um, it's possible, that if we step back from this verse, I, I wonder whether there might be some who feel like this language is, is hyperbolic. They might say, you know, what's happened here? Hannah had not been able to have a child and now she had a boy. Is that, does that deserve this kind of incredible language of our heart exalting, horn exalting, mouth rejoicing in salvation? Was the, was the birth of a boy her salvation? You know, it sounds like very high and exalted language for, for what happened. As, as one commentator put it, he said, well, it kind of seems like Hannah had one answered prayer and maybe things settled down in Elkanah's household a little bit, but 
is it really, does the situation really justify this, this language? And I think what we want to do is move on then to verse 2. Because what verse 2 makes clear is that the main thing that is thrilling Hannah's soul here, the main thing that is strengthening Hannah with hope and causing her voice to break forth, is not merely the birth of a son, but it's the realization of the kind of God she has. Verse 1 talks about her praise and response. Verse 2 goes on to say, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. She declares that God is holy, set apart from his creation and from all others in glory, majesty, and character. She declares that God is God alone, incomparable and unrivaled by any other. She declares that God is a rock, a strong and secure protection for his people, one who is worth trusting, a strong rock who is worth trusting in whatever situation one faces. Yes, having a son was a great joy to Hannah, but the main thing causing her heart and strength and voice to join together in one prayer of praise is what Hannah has learned about her God from his response to her prayer. And I think we can broaden this out too to remember maybe even more broadly what's happening in 1 Samuel. Historically, 1 Samuel comes right on the heels of the book of Judges. Remember what's happening in the book of Judges? By the end of the book of Judges, there is no king in Israel and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. There is chaos. There is evil. There is rampant evil throughout Israel. There is harm and oppression. There's moral chaos. There's, there's, there's spiritual immorality and distance from God. And that's the context in which Hannah was suffering daily provocation. She didn't even have to look at her own life, but even to look around at God's people to say, where is God? Where is, where is he and his people here? But Hannah, when she sees God answer her prayer, she learns firsthand about his character and his trustworthiness and is reminded that this Yahweh, this God of Israel, there is none like him. There is none holy like him. There is no rock like him. And she's reminded that when he answers her prayer. This is the God of Israel. And if the God of Israel acts like this on behalf of those who are in distress, then Hannah has good reason to break forth in praise. So that's the first point here we see. Hannah's personal response to God's answer to her prayer. But then there's a shift in verses 3 through 8. It's a shift from Hannah's personal exaltation and praise for how God had answered her prayer into the plural, from singular to plural, from specific to general. It's like one of those scenes in cinematography where you're focused in on one character, watching their facial response to what's happening, and then the, the camera pans out. And you don't just see that one person, you see the whole crowd and you see what's happening in general. That's what Hannah's doing here. She's moving from the specific example of her life to the big picture. And in verse 3 through 8, what you can hear Hannah saying is, God has acted to save me from my distress, but it's not just me. I'm not special. I'm not unique. Because what God did for me is typical of the God of Israel. That's what the God of Israel is like. That's how he acts. He acts on behalf of the poor and the distressed and the feeble. 
And my little episode of an unexpected birth of a child is just one example of all the ways that the Lord acts to come alongside those who are needy and raise up those who are bowed down. I think verse 3 makes the big picture point. And um, when it says, talk no more proudly, let not your mouth respond with arrogance, it's, it, those words are plural. This is saying in general. To anyone who would hear her or, or read this prayer, do not respond with arrogance. Do not talk proudly. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. God is in perfect and sovereign control of all things. And how God so often acts to bring down the proud and raise up the weak and needy are part of his character and of his sovereign control over all his people. And so then we get this long list of specific example. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full suddenly are needy, and those who were needy now have bread to eat. Those who were barren have borne seven. Seven, as you know, is a number of fullness or completeness. The, the one who was barren now has a full or complete family, while as she who has many ch- children is now forlorn. The Lord makes poor and the Lord makes rich. The Lord kills, the Lord brings to life. The Lord raises up the poor to sit with princes. These are the kinds of things the God of Israel does. He is sovereign. And so we dare not respond with arrogance. We dare not talk proudly. Rather, we trust in the Lord. He is the one who knows and brings to pass. He is the one who weighs actions. And all of these things that the Lord does rest on the key point at the end of verse 8. Look down to verse 8 and you see how she concludes this. It's the second half of verse 8. Four. She's gone through all these examples. Why is this the case? For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. The Lord set the world on its pillars. The Lord controls the great destinies and the small events. All things are in the Lord's hands. And Hannah is saying just what God has said. The whole world is mine. I am sovereign over all things. I act in these ways. You might think of what God says to Job. Do you remember when God spoke out of a whirlwind to Job? What did Job say? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. God is reminding Job, I'm the one who set the earth on its foundations. I am the one who am sovereign in control of all things. Or maybe you think of Proverbs 16.1, which say, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue belongs to the Lord. Say what you will, the Lord is sovereign. He is the one who brings the answer of every matter. Or maybe you think of James, James chapter 4, which says, Come, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It's making the same point that Hannah's drawing attention to here. The Lord is sovereign. God is in control of all things. So we dare not respond arrogantly or boast or taunt. But for those who are needy, this is great comfort. The Lord is in control of all things. All things are in his hand. He is the one who established the pillars of the earth. And he is the one who kills and brings to life, who raises up the lowly, 
who fills the hungry, who meets the needy. I wonder if we could pause and consider for a moment what a comfort these verses are. This is the kind of God we have. The kind of God who is sovereign in control of all things, and the kind of God who delights to help those who are weak and needy and oppressed and desperate. I wonder if we could consider these verses and their comfort for our lives. True, true, these verses don't function as a guarantee that God will meet every one of our desires. Of course, they don't function that way. Nor are these verses a guarantee that God will meet our desires in our time and our expectations, nor are they a guarantee that bad things will never happen. That's not what these verses do. But what these verses are is a guarantee of the sovereignty and character of God, a guarantee of the kind of God who is in control of all things, including everything that is happening in our lives right now. Many of you know the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism was written in 1563. It was one of the great catechisms of the Reformation. And it was written both to summarize the key truths that we believe, but also to comfort God's people with those truths. And questions 27 and 28 really review the same point that Hannah is making here about the character of our God and his sovereignty. I want you to listen to these two questions and these two answers. Question 27, what do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Question 28. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? The answer, we can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing in creation will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in God's hand that without his will, they can neither be moved nor move. Isn't this such a blessed comfort for us when we're reminded of the sovereignty of our God who sets all things and all the pillars of the earth with his strength and in his hand? And we remember that that sovereign God is a God who cares for his people, who answers prayer, who lifts up the needy. This is the sovereign father that we have. This is what Hannah's talking about as she reviews God's character and his sovereignty in her prayer. One commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, encourages every believer not to despise or demean the little ways that God works on our behalf in life. How many of us could point out so many little ways that God has met our needs or rescued us or cared for us throughout our lives? He says, don't ignore or belittle those little ways that God has worked in your half, on your behalf, because they are little clues that he gives us throughout our lives that remind us that he is king over all and that he has this way of raising up the poor from the dust and lifting the needy from the ash heap. 
Davis says, he says, as you ponder every episode of the Lord's saving help, it will help you believe Jesus' promises to you in Luke 12, where he says, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That truth is emphasized. God reminds us of that truth every time he meets us, every time he gives us little reminders in life of his faithfulness to us. Well, Hannah starts with her personal response to God's goodness to her. Then she talks about God's character as a sovereign God who helps the needy, who raises the poor and makes them sit with princes. But she's not done. This is encouraging But as Hannah lives amongst God's people in this context of spiritual and moral chaos, she knows that God has not just promised help to those who are needy in general. God has actually made specific promises. God has made specific promises to Abraham and to his descendants that they would receive the land and that kings would come from his seed and that all nations of the world would be blessed in Abraham's offspring. She knows that God has made specific promises to Israel in Exodus 19, saying that you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. Now if you will obey my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. She knows Deuteronomy 17, where Moses instructs the people that when they come into the land, They are to set a king over them whom the Lord will choose, who knows God's word and obeys it, so that he and his children will continue long in the kingdom of Israel. Hannah knows that there are these specific promises. And so she ends in verses 9 and 10, and look here by declaring her hope that God will send a king who will accomplish all of his promises in the future. Hannah knows that God has not yet brought all of his plans to fulfillment, but She trusts that because of the character and sovereignty of God, he will still do so. She looks around her and sees God's people weak and scattered and lowly now. But she's just seen in her own life how God comes alongside the weak and the scattered and the needy and rescues them. And that gives her confidence that God is going to work in the same way to bring his salvation for Israel. You see the point that she makes there. Verse 10, particularly as it comes to a close, she says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of the anointed. See, Hannah's prayer is giving us a hint of how God is going to bring all of his promises to a conclusion. Because Hannah's prayer ends by declaring that God will exalt the horn of his anointed. Some of you probably know that the Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. This is actually the first time in the Old Testament that the word anointed one or Messiah is used. A coming king was promised, a coming seed is promised, but here the first time anointed one, Messiah, is used. You might also know, if you think about your words and your your language, that the title that Jesus takes for himself, Christ, is the New Testament equivalent of this word, anointed one, the anointed one, the, the, the sent one. And so you could imagine 
Hannah's prayer concluding if we use a Greek word instead and a Greek title instead of a Hebrew. That God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his Christ. This prayer is looking ahead to God's king who will come. God's king who will come and bring God's plans and promises to fulfillment. Who will rescue God's people once and for all and give them a hope forever. And so here is Hannah. Hannah, excited, yes, over the birth of her own baby. But at the birth of her own son, she realizes just a foretaste. It just whets her appetite for what God is still going to do on behalf of his people when he sends his king, when he sends his anointed one to guard the feet of his faithful ones and judge the earth just as he has promised. And so this prayer is a remarkable one, isn't it? It starts by rejoicing in God's blessing and Hannah's own life. And this causes Hannah to reflect on God's character God has blessed me tremendously, she says, in the face of pain and despair. But that's not surprising because that's what God is like. That's what the God of Israel does. And since that's what God does, since that's the kind of God Israel has, this character of God brings her to these last few verses where she expresses this brightly burning hope. The same hope that is the hope of everyone who trusts in the name of God. That God is going to act again to raise up sinners from the ash heap and to make them sit as princes in the kingdom of his coming king, the culmination of all of his promises. What a beautiful prayer. And as you and I sit here tonight, I think we can have the same encouragement that Hannah gives us here. Because each and every time, God acts to lift us out of the miry bog and set our feet upon a rock. It is a reminder and a foretaste of what is still to come. The decisive act in God's plan has happened. Christ has come. But we're still waiting the fulfillment. And that's great news because you and I still have the hope of this coming king and this anointed one and we will dwell with him forever. He will give us this hope. He will act on our behalf and raise us up to sit with him at his side. And so, brothers and sisters, this is a glorious hope. Keep your eyes and your hearts fixed on God's Christ, on God's anointed one. Give thanks for all the little promises and salvations and blessings he gives, but remember they are just the appetizer. Keep your hope on the final fulfillment of what he is about to do any day in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, How we thank you for the way you act. How we thank you for your character as one who is sovereign over all and as one who cares for the weak and for the needy, for the sick and for the oppressed. How we thank you that the little acts of salvation and grace and provision that we sometimes take for granted are really just a foretaste, really just a a sample of what you're going to do full scale in the coming years. We still look forward with great hope and confidence when Christ comes again that all these things will be fulfilled and your people will receive the promises you've given in Christ Jesus. Stir our hearts with joy and thanksgiving tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.